So this episode of Tatter, like all episodes of Tatter, was produced in the digital media studios at Bates College. I feel very grateful for access to the DMS and for the support of its staff, especially Colin Kelly, but I want to emphasize that the views expressed on Tatter are solely the views of the people speaking and are in no way official views of Bates College. But if our college president ever should listen, I hope that she finds the show interesting. In any case, here's this episode of Tatter. Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. For those of you who have been listening to the most recent episodes of Tatter, you are aware that it has evolved into a focus on policy and politics, and the current episode is no exception. The big question in this episode is about the prospects of the Democratic Party in the U.S. as the 2018 midterm elections approach. As those elections come into focus, I had a chance to sit down and talk by phone with an expert who knows some things relevant to that question. The title of this episode is Rising Tide. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Denver. That is Seth Maskett. Um, I'm also director of the Center on American Politics. That's a new center at the University of Denver. Um, I write regularly for uh, Mischiefs of Faction at Vox.com. Uh, also, I have a weekly column at Pacific Standard and contribute occasionally to 538. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Uh, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of politics in just a moment, but just to get you settled in and warmed up since we haven't done an interview before, uh, an opening question for you that has nothing to do with politics. And even though I'm an African-American, I assure you there's no correct answer here. I'm just curious. Uh, how many times have you seen Black Panther? Uh, sadly, only once. Only once. Okay. I will yeah. not judge you, uh, but I, <laughs> I actually just saw it for the second time uh, last night. Uh, what did you think of it? Um, I loved it. I mean, I'm, you know, in some ways kind of an easy target. I, you know, I'm a big fan of the, of the, you know, the, the Marvel films, but, yeah. um, this was really one of the most politically nuanced and, and interesting, uh, superhero films that's been made you know, almost ever. Um, uh, there's that wonderful piece. I don't know if you saw the piece, uh, in the Atlantic, um, I'm blanking on the author, just, you know, just focusing on Killmonger as this, complex villain, because, um, you know, you walk out of there saying, I'm not totally sure he was wrong, but then, you yeah. know, there's, there's important aspects in which he was just, you know, falling into the same imperialism trap as everyone else, and um, I, I just thought it was great. It was just great action and really just really thrilling and very satisfying, both, you know, politically and, and viscerally. I don't What did you think? Uh, I thought exactly the same. Um, <laughs> I had gone into it um, a little worried uh, because so much of the hype was about the cultural and political significance and not about the story itself. I was worried right. that, that if that if the director, Ryan Coogler, tried to live up to that hype, that the story might suffer. But no, it did not suffer at all. <laughs> that it was a great story while still actually being important in um, the ways that are pretty obvious. Um, there's a meme going around. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but there's a meme going around 
of a couple of young black, uh, I'm guessing black American boys. They look to be about four years old. And they're outside the theater looking at the Black Panther poster, jumping up around, jumping up and down. And one of them says, this one's me. And someone else points to a different character and says, no, this one's me. And so it's like just this moment of them seeing themselves on the big screen in, this, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And uh, it's just really compelling to, to see their reaction to it. But it's also just a great story. So I also That's love great. it. But anyway, um, one of the things I was thinking about is that you're lucky uh, that you don't live in Wakanda. And what I mean by that is, <laughs> given that you study political parties and uh, legislators, legislatures, uh, of which there are none in Wakanda, you'd be out of work, or I guess you'd be studying uh, monarchical politics if you were there. Uh, but uh, what, as I've just said, what you do study uh, are things related to democracy, particularly in the U.S. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Uh, and as a segue into it, but also a segue from pop culture into it, I have a confession to make. Uh, that is, I have never seen the show uh, Bob's Burgers. I'm not sure if you have. I uh, have not. Well, have there's not. apparently a character on that show named Linda Belcher. Uh, and this was news to me because, as you know, uh, one of the people from politics whom I want to discuss with you is Linda Belcher. And uh, right. a lot of my friends uh, on social media have been posting about her recent uh, electoral victory. She's a Democrat in Kentucky who had been in office previously in the state legislature uh, for at least, a, she got elected a couple of times, but she lost in 2016 uh, in a district that went overwhelmingly for Trump. And now there's been a special election uh, just uh, last week, I believe, that she won. Uh, so she won her seat back. It won quite convincingly. The margin of victory, I think, was over 30 points. And yeah. a lot of my Democratic friends have been celebrating this because it's a landslide in this district that uh, went very red, at least in terms of support for Trump in 2016. And this Democrats won. And she's the 38th uh, Democrat uh, since Trump's election to flip a state legislative seat from Republican, uh, so from red uh, to blue. We're going to South uh, Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. And we're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. Yeah! And I wonder, given what you know about that race, how significant is it? Because a lot of my friends who've been posting have been saying this is evidence of a really strong democratic tide rising. I mean, I think by itself, it's uh, you know, it lends itself probably to some overinterpretation, and uh, I think a little bit of overenthusiasm by Democrats. I mean, that, that's a huge shift um, from 2016, and we haven't seen anything like that reflected anywhere else. But it is consistent with um, you know the overall trend we've seen in the last year, which is you know a, a fairly substantial shift. Um, in the democratic direction, you know, every uh, in in all the special elections we want to look at, whether it's whether they're for congressional races or state legislative races um, or anything else, um, those elections that have happened since Trump's inauguration, basically, uh, there's been a, a pretty sizable shift in the democratic direction. Um, on average, uh, I think it's about. Uh, 12 points, like that is the, the Democrat did 
about 12 points better than that district voted for uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016 or Barack Obama did in, in 2012. And so, you know, the, the, the Belcher race is, uh, you know, in, in many ways kind of an outlier there. It's, it's much better than Democrats have done, but it's also consistent with the overall trend of Democrats doing well in these, uh, these off-cycle elections. And one thing that I neglected to mention is there are ways in which it was a rather unusual set of circumstances. Uh, Belcher was running against the widow of the Republican uh, incumbent who had died in office. And when I say died in office, uh, that's an understatement. He apparently committed suicide in the face of uh, sex abuse uh, allegations. So running against, um, as far as I know, a a neophyte uh, widow uh, whose husband had faced scandal, I would imagine Belcher should have won uh, decisively. So it was kind of an uncanny race. But what I hear you saying is, even if it's an outlier, there's this more general trend that we've seen. That's that's correct, yeah. Yeah, there are all sorts of reasons why that was a un- really unusual race, and we wouldn't expect that to kind of export to other districts. But uh, but it, it's still condi- you know consistent with this trend where... You know, a lot of contested districts, even some fairly Republican-leaning districts, are, are trending pretty strongly Democratic right now. By a number of different indicators, um, uh, this is looking to be a, a, a good potential year for Democratic candidates at a lot of different levels. And, you know, and that is, you know, th- those indicators are, you know, first of all, the president's party always fares poorly in midterm elections. Uh, almost always, anyway. Um, particularly when the president is unpopular, which this one is. You know, you have like record numbers of people filing to run as Democrats for Congress. Um, you know, all, all sorts of indicators suggest that this will be a good year for them. Um, that's a year when you know that that's a type of situation when a party would be very smart to you know not just try and field candidates in the competitive districts and fund them massively, but also field. Um, candidates in uh, districts where they don't always do that well. I mean, this was in many ways the secrets to the Democrats' success in, in 2006, um, when there was a, you know, there, all indications were was the tide was leaning in their direction, people were dissatisfied with the Iraq war, um, and President Bush was growing increasingly unpopular. And so, you know, following the, the Howard Dean 50 state strategy, they just they fielded candidates all over the place in the Carolinas, in Montana, and um, picked up a number of places where they wouldn't have done well otherwise. Now, you know, had they not pursued such an aggressive strategy, maybe they would have taken the House anyway. Um, but by much closer margins, um, and it might have been, you know, given them less to build on for 2008 um, and, you know, achieve less uh, policy success otherwise. But if they, you know, now's the time to be trying to field candidates in those, uh, those districts where they don't always do that. We've gone from first to twelfth in the world in wages. We've had four years where we produced no private sector jobs. Most people are working harder for less money than they were making ten years ago. It is because we are in the grip of a failed economic theory. And this decision you're about to make better be about what kind of economic theory you want. Not just people saying, I'm going to go fix it, but what are we going to do? What I think we have to do is invest in American jobs, American education, control American health care costs, and bring the American people together again. 
In a recent interview, I spoke with Chris Federico, a political scientist at the University of Minnesota. And in describing voter behavior, he referred to what he called two major fundamentals, one of which being the popularity of the president, which you've just referred, the other being the state of the economy. I wonder, when you think about the Democrats' prospects in the upcoming midterm elections, to what extent does the state of the economy play a likely role in predicting how well they're going to do? Um, that is one of the big ones. And uh, economic growth is actually a very important predictor, certainly in presidential elections and also in congressional midterm elections. Now, you know, that, that said, even when the economy is, has, gone, uh, has grown pretty strongly in the past, the president's party has still lost seats, just, you know, perhaps somewhat less than they usually do. But, you know, the one time, there were basically two times since World War II where we've seen uh, the president's party gain seats in midterm elections. Um, You know, one was 1998, uh, where Democrats picked up a handful of seats. And part of that was a reaction to Republicans trying to impeach Bill Clinton. Uh, But part of that was also there was, you know, very strong economic growth at that time. Um, I I think an average of over 4% that year. Um, and then uh, again in 2002, um, when uh, Republicans picked up a handful of seats, and uh, partially there was there was reasonably strong economic growth, but also you know the president was very popular. This was still uh, you know just roughly a year after 9/11. Uh, George W. Bush still had very high approval ratings. Given where the economy is now. Um, you know, it, it's difficult to say. I mean, obviously, there has been, we're still in a period of, of reasonable economic growth. Um, that will, you know, if that continues, it will probably help Republicans mitigate some losses. Um, but one of the more surprising things over the past year is that, you know, Donald Trump has really had pretty favorable conditions for a president. That is, he's had, uh, you know, relatively, you know, reasonably strong economic growth. He's had, uh, you know, relatively, you know, lack of major wars going on. Uh, Crime rate is low. Uh, You know, all these things that, you know, most presidents really pine for, um, and it's not really helped him out in terms of approval ratings. He's, you know, he he has the approval rating of a president, uh, you know, under much worse conditions. Um, in part because he manages to step on his good news all the time with fairly outlandish behavior and horrible language. So um, he's, you know, I guess it remains to be seen how much his personal unpopularity drags the party down even in uh, relative good times uh, for the country. Get this, Donald. Nasty women are tough. Nasty women are smart, and nasty women vote. I recall that the most recent issue of The Economist in its Lexington column spoke of the role of female Democratic candidates and female Democratic voters and perhaps also female independent voters as an obstacle to Trump's success and, by extension, the success of his own party. I wonder if you have a sense of how important it is for the Democratic Party to feature uh, strong female candidates and also to 
whatever the gender of the candidate to uh, reach out to uh, female voters in its party and also uh, those who are independent in order to achieve success in the upcoming midterm elections. So um, one of the things operating in the Democrats' favor, I, I think I mentioned earlier, was that um, there are record numbers of people uh, filing to run as Democrats for office right now, both for Congress and for state legislatures. A lot of what has driven that, and I think a, a very high percentage of those candidates um, are women. And a lot of what's driven that is simply a, a reaction to um, some of Donald Trump's policies and some of his, his worst statements, uh, both during the 2016 campaign and, and since then. Um, that this has been, in many ways, a time of, uh, you know, of, of renewed political activism by women. Um, the, the Me Too movement is certainly related to all this. Um, and has, you know, spurred more women who, you know, either to become more politically active or politically active women to consider running for office. So, you know, I think whether candidates or whether parties choose to uh, reach out to women or, or not, I mean, I think that that's just going to happen, um, that, you know, you, you simply have just large numbers of women running for office right now, and a lot of these issues that... Uh, some male politicians would rather not get into are simply going to be brought up um, and are you know, going to be kind of defining the, the fall election season. Another political scientist uh, with whom I had the pleasure of chatting recently was Julia Azari. And we discussed, we discussed race. And when I asked her whether she thought the populist wing of the Democratic Party or the more centrist wing was ascendant, her answer was yes, but then she went on to say that her, her concern was that as each of those uh, wings of the party flexes its muscle, groups that might be marginalized or, or further marginalized within the Democratic Party might be people of color and that their interests might take a back seat uh, to either the primarily economic concerns of the populist wing or the perhaps also primarily economic but also foreign policy concerns uh, of the more centrist wing. I wonder if you have a sense of uh, how – what as you look at the dynamics of state legislatures and also the U.S. Congress, do you have a sense of whether the interest of voters of color – are likely uh, to get more of an emphasis uh, as we move forward. Say, for example, uh, concerns related to uh, 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 racial bias and police use of force. So this is a really interesting topic. I'm actually, I, I'm working on a, on a book project right now that, that uh, deals with this as kind of a central issue in terms of basically how Democrats, you know, both, both voters and, and really like party insiders, party leaders, um, how Democrats interpret the lesson of 2016, um, you know, as they sort of, you know, try and recalibrate the party to make it more competitive for upcoming elections, you know, w what do they see as the main reason it lost at the presidential level in 2016, and, and how do they kind of fix that? And, and there's still a very substantial divide within the Democratic Party um, on that on that question of, of why they lost. And uh, you have, um, you know, I guess one of the dominant uh, 
perhaps the, the dominant interpretation is the so-called identity politics argument, which is uh, Hillary Clinton spent uh, too much time uh, focusing on particular subgroups of the Democratic coalition, African Americans, Latinos, uh, women, uh, the LGBT community, um, and not enough time talking about a, a common vision uh, for all Americans. And those who make that argument tend to say, you know, what, what we really need to do is reach out to uh, the white working class who will shift back and forth and uh, between the parties, and we really need to reach out to those voters who kind of left the Democratic coalition. Now, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting argument, and, you know, uh, regardless of whether there's truth behind it, it's the same argument that a, a good chunk of the Democratic Party has been using for at least the last half century every time it loses. Um, you know, that is that uh, what we need to do is focus more on, on rural whites because they seem to be drifting away from the party. And if you, uh, if you were like watching the, the Democratic Unity Commission over this past year, which is, you know, consisting of uh, Sanders and Clinton delegates who were trying to, you know, basically part of the Democratic uh, Party and making recommendations to the DNC about ways to change the party, you know, roughly half of that group uh, was pushing uh, an argument along those lines. Those tended to be uh, people, nom people who were put there by, by the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, the, the Clinton people on that uh, committee tended to be arguing that um, we don't necessarily need to be focusing so much on the white working class, that there are uh, voters of color who have been voting loyally Democratic for a long time and have been doing a lot of the labor in the party, um, and maybe we should be worrying about uh, those groups of voters instead of the people who seem to be less committed to the party. Um, and so, you know, a lot of arguments, you know, tended to be along those lines. And again, these are, these are old arguments in the Democratic coalition. It's hard to say, you know, which group kind of won that fight. I don't know that anyone ever really has. Um, but a lot of the recommendations coming out of that committee that the, that the DNC will be, uh, you know, addressing shortly are things like creating open primaries. Um, creating a sort of a more open caucus system that unaffiliated voters um, can participate in, um, you know, reducing the role of superdelegates. Um, you know, these, you know, and, and a number of the Clinton delegates raised concerns about these reforms, um, saying, you know, if we, go, if we move, you know, if we encourage more states to go to open primaries, that might dilute uh, the power, uh, you know, dilute the, the voice of African Americans and uh, Latinos and other racial minorities in the Democratic nomination process. Um, you know, so that's, this remains a very, uh, very lively topic, and, and the party seems to be moving at least slightly in the direction of a, of a more open process that could, you know, tend toward the nomination of, if not Bernie Sanders, someone sort of like him. Um, but, you know, it, it's hard to say what that means in terms of, um, uh, you know, who exactly will get nominated. I mean, it's, it, there's still so many unknowns in, uh, in, in the 2020 process um, and so many different candidates who have expressed interest in it. Um, it. It's hard to know who's really kind of the, uh, you know, who, who are the front runners right now. Even though we've been discussing some issues that are electoral uh, in nature, 
This speaks to something which I would argue is at some level even more important, uh, literally life and death issues. And I'm obviously thinking of issues raised by the recent shooting at Stoneman Douglas uh, High School in Parkland, Florida, which has raised an ongoing set of questions about uh, gun control. And it seems as if, at least at this moment, uh, but it seems as if we've been at this moment before, um, uh, but those who are advocating for gun control are mobilized right now. But at the same time, I suspect that their mobilization is also motivating counter-mobilization by gun rights advocates. I wonder if you have a sense of which of those two sides is likely to get more traction as they advocate uh, uh, for uh, uh, their interests with legislatures? Well, you know, I mean, just judging from what we've seen in, in recent history, I'm, you know, I'm not terribly optimistic about prospects for um, serious gun control reform at the national level. Um, you know, that said, the, you know, given the, you know, particularly recent over the last few years spate of um, school shootings and, and um, uh, mass shootings and other just very public environments, um, you know, it, it seems reasonable to think that there is some sort of tipping point. Um, that, you know, there is a point where enough people feel sympathetic to the victims and feel that the uh, rationale offered by the NRA or for Republicans uh, that, you know, the problem is not guns, the problem is the people and what we need are more guns. Um, you know, at some point that simply loses traction um, and just, you know, no longer seems like a, like a serious message. Um, you know, just judging by the last week, uh, we may be at that point um, that there, that there is enough of a shift, that there is enough, um, uh, enough sort of pushing back on, on the, the typical arguments against, uh, gun control. Um, but, you know, whether this will be sustained is, is hard to say. Um, it's been, what's been really remarkable about, um, you know, the, the, the news coverage and the, the activism surrounding the, um, the, the Parkland shooting is that we've more or less been discussing a single topic um, for more than a week now, which has been <laughs> really hard in this, you know, you know, over the past year. I mean, usually we go from crisis to crisis over the course of hours. Um, so the fact that, you know, we, this has been maintained as a story is, is, is something striking, and that's what usually uh, ends up strangling efforts for gun control is that the public simply loses attention in it. Um, they, they lose interest and they move on to the next story. And at least for now, people have been able to maintain focus on this story. And as long as that is a key focus, um, some sort of serious reform actually has a shot. That is it for Tatter. I want to thank Seth Maskett for chatting with me. And if you want to read his Vox.com article describing a forecasting model which predicts some significant pickups by Democrats in the U.S. House as well as in state legislatures, 
then you should go to the Facebook page for Tatter. That's facebook.com slash tatter.rags. If you go there, you can like it, and I hope you will really, really like it. And you'll be able to see posts from a variety of topics related to Tatter. But importantly, you'll see the link to that article. And I also want to extend a special note of gratitude to Claire Cummings for helping me see the connection to Bob's Burgers. Thank you very much, Claire. And thanks to each of you for listening. Stay tuned. Go to facebook.com slash tatter.rags for information on the next episode of Tatter. For now, be well.